and uh, we'll pray and we'll close things out. I apologize for the temperature. This is a small town church. We do not have AC, so uh, we will do our best. Father, um, today isn't the first day that you are aware of the work being done by these men. We throw a summit together and we gather, and this isn't the day it dawns on you that work needs to be done in small, isolated, forgotten places. Um, they haven't been forgotten by you. In fact, they're watched closely, I would imagine. And you were active and you were working. And we are humbled uh, to be on this particular team. And it's a particular job. And you've equipped us particularly. And so um, I'm, just, I'm just glad. Today is a day where you don't feel so isolated. Today is a day where you don't feel so alone. And today is a day where the job seems doable. And that is to your glory and our great encouragement. So we, we owe you. You have been gracious today. Would you be here in our final session and would this time, like other sessions before, be glorifying to you, encouraging to us, motivating to us? And would your work continue in these places? In Jesus' great name, everybody said, amen. I confess this was one of the more difficult talks for me to write, on the one hand, um, for me, it, it almost doesn't matter what we talk about. There is something that's been happening throughout the day that really has little to do with content. It's just gathering in a room together of guys doing a similar work, and, and that's a joy to my heart and soul. So I'm just grateful. So on, on the one hand, it doesn't matter what I talk about, so talk about anything. Yet on the other hand, Rural ministry is a, is a different bird. Small town church ministry is just different. And so you start thinking about all the things that we could talk about and, and should talk about. And then it just gets big for a one-day event. Too big. Overwhelming. How can, we hit, how can we hit it all? And that is impossible. And so it was, it was, it was difficult Small-town pastors, and I think there's no argument here, small-town pastors are some of the more under-resourced and under-supported pastors out there. And it can cultivate in us a kind of desperation that makes us a little bit needy when we come to things like this. We feel alone, and we feel like we need help, and we just need help, and we come, and we're expecting to hear one thing. It makes us a little bit needy. I've been in that place. We're a little desperate. And so there's that, there's that particular pressure, I suppose. So much of what we read or hear or experience at conferences doesn't fit. If it were a jacket, we would put it on and find that it's just, we can't move our shoulders very well, the sleeves aren't the right length, and we're just like, I mean, that sounds really good, but I put it on, and it looks ridiculous. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. We see the lights, the Oscar-level productions, the tour-ready bands, and world-class speakers and wonder how we're going to get all of that in our carry-on and go home. Like, how is that going to fit? What do I do? And so we leave some of the most under-resourced guys with the greatest job of translation. And so we end up coming home more often. If you're like me, you go to these conferences, and sometimes I can leave those conferences and come home and feel like I don't know if that helped at all. It just, it doesn't fit. And then we end up wrestling with the feelings of failure that we experience when we see how big and how well other people are doing it. And we go home and we 
start wrestling with feelings of inadequacy and we feel insignificant and we feel inconsequential in a global scope and we're like, am I even doing anything of any value at all? And that can be overwhelming. I don't believe anyone intends to do this. (laughs) I don't believe they intend to do this to us, but often this is exactly the result. And we're left alone. When I came into Acts 29, uh, some 13 years ago now, back when I planted Valley Life, 13 years ago, when I came into the network, one of the four stated values of this particular church planting network was urban church planting. I mean, the roots of Acts 29 are urban church planting, explicitly so. And for me, that was the one miss. I came into a place where they were missiologically engaged and theologically robust. And I came in, I was meeting people that were sources of life and were encouraging. And yet, contextually, I did not fit. I didn't fit in Seattle. I didn't fit in Portland. I didn't fit in LA. I didn't fit in all the places Acts 29 was planting churches. In fact, I was even told at one point, and this from a well-known author and conference speaker, I was told that I was in the wrong network. He said, it's like ministry, it's going to be like ministry pornography for you. You're going to see things that could never belong to you and you are going to lust after it. Just because my context was different? By whatever metric, by whatever standard, I was, I was disheartened, for, to say the least. I just felt like I didn't fit, and I felt like I had no people and no place. And so, I compensated. I prided myself in always making noise for rural What about small towns? What about small towns? What about small towns? And <laughs> this, this went on for several years, and then it dawned on me a handful of years ago, and this was a stopping moment for me. Was I bringing this up because I really carried, cared about rural areas and rural ministry, or was I bringing it up because I wanted a seat at the big boy table? Was it, was it just my niche? Was it just my way of being recognized by peers I really, if you got down to it, wanted to be like and really felt like I never would be? It's not the greatest motivation for rural ministry and church planting, but a very real struggle for guys in forgotten places. So if today is just about moving from one table to the, ne- to the next, you know, you imagine the family Thanksgiving dinner and all the kids are at the little card table with the little chairs around and all the adults are at the big table. If this is just about moving up from one table to the next table, then, then we've got to stop and be explicit and check our motivations because that will leave you harmed and it will leave the mission harmed. And it is subtle So that can't be our motivations. And if it is, we will have only served to perpetuate the very thing that hurts us so much. It will have only served to perpetuate the idea that big is the only place where the answers are. Because in our culture of church planting and church ministry, that's, that's how we think about it. Big knows what they're doing, small does not. And so that the resourcing only flows one direction. And if our goal then is to get from one table to the next table, we're going to only perpetuate the thing that hurts us so much. And it's going to do damage to the mission of God. And it's going to do damage to brothers we care about doing a a like ministry. Is that making sense? 
So we, we have to be explicit about that. And that's our culture. So we, I want you to think about it. The institutions, they know best. The universities, they know best. The megachurches, they know best. And, 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 and it only flows one way. And we only ever feel on the receiving end. The problem is what we receive so often doesn't fit. So we, we've, got to, we've got to think about things differently. We've got to do things differently. Big isn't the only arbiter on matters of church and mission. I want to say that again. Big isn't the only arbiter on matters of church and mission. What you guys know, what you have experienced, what you have seen, informs church and mission. informs church and mission. Otherwise, Jesus did it all wrong. Otherwise, Jesus did it all wrong. So what are our motivations? Why do we want people to start talking about rural? Do we want to see rural churches planted and revitalized, or we just want to feel like we're doing something worth it and everybody knows? If it's the latter, we got to prayerfully and by God's great grace, let it go. I ran at that thing in a network that is international. There's a lot of big names, conference speakers, and authors in it. And that became the metric whereby I evaluated my own success, and I ran at that hard for a long time and nearly wrecked myself. And so we've... we've we got to think differently. And my hope with the summit and involvement in the Rural Collective is that guys doing a like ministry, maybe their names will never be known. Even the books that they do write are not going to be read by most. And are we going to keep doing it anyway? If today does nothing else, can we look around the room and, and just feel for a day that we're on the team and that God is doing something, maybe something you can't recognize, but he is doing something and he sees a son doing a mighty work and, and he is glad. Man, I need that. I need that. So we're going to hang around there for a little bit and then we're going to talk about multiplication here and just tease it a little bit and then, I don't know, we'll do other summits or something and talk about other things. But I just want to hang around to this thought for just a bit and I hope that it resonates with you and then it does soul work that we start to breathe with, with less tension in our shoulders and we can relax and settle into the seat that God has given us and, and be glad. And so that I hope this is refreshing to you. Turn to Genesis chapter 11. For a rural church planning conference, I recognize this is an interesting text. But hang with me. You guys are pastors and leaders. I'm not going to do a ton of work building out the context here, but the context does matter. Since Genesis 3, there is this very evident, as you're aware, worsening since that whole scene that went down in the garden, there has been, there is very clear in the narrative a worsening in each chapter with each generation. Things are getting worse from that moment. It reaches an apex in Genesis 6, as you know, with the flood when it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God brings judgment, sends a flood, what Steve Jeffrey calls a decreation. God created, then with the flood, he decreated. Why? To recreate. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. In Genesis 8, the flood subsides. There's the picture of God recreating. In, in, in Genesis 8 and 9, God makes a covenant with Noah, as you know, is very similar to the one he made with Adam. So that recreation, he says it again, be fruitful, multiply, and, and fill the earth. 
But like before, no sooner is the covenant made and we're right back to where we started with sin and nakedness. And Noah is passed out naked, drunk in a tent. In Genesis 10, the descendants of Noah are listed, forming the nations. And then in chapter 11, God sees them dispersed over the face of the earth, the fulfillment of what he told them to do to to fill the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so that's the text we're in. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we what? lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's the exact opposite. What they're doing is the exact opposite of what God told them to do. So God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And what they do is they settle instead, lest they be dispersed over the face of the earth. That is an intended piece of the narrative, that there is, this is intentional rebellion. So instead, this is Genesis 3 all over again, instead of honoring God and doing what God called them to do, they are instead going to, like Eve, they're going, who, who believed that she could be like God, instead they are going to settle, not be dispersed over the face of the earth. They're going to build a city with a tower with its tops in the heavens, and they are going to build what for themselves? A name. And the serpent said, oh, you know, you won't surely die. Just knows you'll be like God. As Genesis 3 again continues. And the Lord came down, which is something that God does. He comes down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the whole face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. It says that twice in the narrative, that the Lord came down. Yeah, he confused their language, all of that, but he came down to ultimately do what? Disperse them like I told you in the beginning. Okay. So God gives, gives this man, it makes this covenant with Adam, and then again with Noah, the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If that doesn't tell us a little bit about God's heart for the forgotten places, I don't know what does. The tenacity, the determination, the sovereign determination that he will see the earth filled if he has to do it himself. You see that? It, it seems to me, in a sense, that this is still going on today. It's in Genesis 11 over and over again. What God did here in Genesis 11 did not put an end to the building of towers. So, so that wasn't necessarily the, the ultimate motivation. Otherwise, it would have stopped. We continued to build Cities, we've continued to build towers with their tops in the heavens, and we continue to this day to make names for ourselves. So what God did here in the text, he did not put a stop to all of that. It leads me to wonder then if God still to this day comes down to confuse language or whatever to get us back on mission. If he doesn't again interrupt, because we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we see that rhythm in the text, familiar with the Old Testament, that's the rhythm over and over again. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
And we're right back to building cities with, their t- with towers, with their tops in the heavens, working so hard and so frantically to make names for ourselves. And, and, and does God still then, I wonder, come down and confuse language to get us back on mission. Now, I want you to think about that particularly as relates to the church or or more specifically church planting. God tells us to go and make disciples of how many of the nations? All of the nations. Go make disciples of all of the nations and so often instead we determine to settle down. We found a place that's comfy and we don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. And then in our culture, our success-driven, numbers-driven, efficiency-driven culture, we determined to make names for ourselves and we fooled ourselves into believing that a bigger name is bigger fruitfulness. Now, can a bigger name bring bigger fruitfulness? Sure, but has God called everyone to that big of a name. And so there's the wrestle. So we make bricks, we build cities, we build towers with their tops in the heavens intent in making our na- a name for ourselves. It's just deja vu. We are prone to build up rather than move out. We're prone to build up rather than move out. And this seems apparent to me throughout church history working hard to build platforms with their tops in the heavens. Is it any wonder why we see so many pastors fall, why we see so many church plants fail or churches split over who knows what? Is God just again confusing language to get us to move out again? Because what we've done instead is we have settled. Because we don't want to be dispersed, so we've settled. We're comfortable here, and we build this, and we build it up. And in so doing, make a name for ourselves, and we fool ourselves into thinking that a bigger name is greater fruitfulness, so we've justified it, and we continue to build this tower, and then all of a sudden, it comes crashing down. The church splits. What was a multi-site campus now is independent churches. Pastors fall. We write articles about them, and it blows up all over the place. Is God not just confusing language yet again to get us back on mission to fill the earth? And I see that narrative in my own heart and in my own history as a church planner. Maybe God looks down and he says again, many, many, many times over, they all share one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And so he confuses. We, we tend to build up rather than move out and it can it can be hard to tell the difference between the two especially in the early stages because the out the outcomes are altogether different but in the early stages it seems it seems similar and we feel like it's a it's a good thing and we've we figured out a way to justify it and you know if i if i do these things and my name is bigger well that will only serve the lord more and man, then you are just frantically trying to build a platform. And, and, and guys, uh, you've seen enough articles and enough news blips about pastors falling. I'm telling you, it is harder to keep a platform up than it is to build it. And all of this is a slow fade. Have you, uh, uh, there's a saying, I don't know where it came from, but that 2% change goes unnoticed. When things change at 2% increments, we don't, we don't really notice. It's the whole frog in the kettle metaphor. You remember that? If you turn the heat up slow, it doesn't really notice. And drop a minute hot, and he reacts, and he's out. 2% change goes unnoticed, and we start making those little incremental changes, and, and I don't even notice. And certainly no one around me notices. And then we're crashing down. I think about this with regards to the internet and our web pages and our social media presence online, blogging and podcasting. Look, I think all of these are good things and many of them we do. And so I I don't think we need to necessarily 
disregard or throw all of these things off, but where, what are my motivations in them? And am I being honest with them? Over the last uh, several years, uh, a few years, three, four years, I've just been really frustrated. Every Sunday after service, I have a routine. So after second service and everything's winding down, I leave and then my tech guys look to me and go, one or two, one or two. What are they asking? Which one goes online? One or two, one or two. Which causes me to evaluate my performance that morning and try to determine and assess which one I want out there. I've been, I have off and on been frustrated at that, not at the question. I created the culture. So I'm not frustrated at the question, <laughs> but, but I've started to ask this question as we're videotaping even here to put online for the Rural Collective. But I've asked this question, what, preacher, listen, what happened to the sermon for right here, right now, these people? And nobody else. Could that be the difference between one or two? Is it by God's great grace he is speaking to one gathering differently than he's speaking to one gathering? And I am being presumptuous, (laughs) sort of inserting myself in that decision of which one should go online. What happened to just the raw proclamation of the gospel and when I'm done, it's done? I don't know. I wrestle with this and I'm still compelled to put things online. I imagine that wrestling match will continue. But it is a good question to ask and it is a good examination of the heart to just stop, take a breath. What am I accomplishing? What are my intentions? And what do I hope? Hmm. That will continue to be challenging for me. I believe that God uses all of these things, and uh, I believe there are guys out there that God has intentionally positioned high on a fairly large platform for His glory, and that is precisely the difference, for His glory, not ours. And I think Genesis 12 is the answer. I'll just throw this on the screen, but you can look. I I think this text, a, a massive text for the church, it's repeated over and over and over throughout Scripture. This is, this is one of those texts. And I think it's, it's intended to be in contrast to the narrative in 11. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that what? So that you will be a blessing. Now you see the contrast between 12 and 11 because in 11 there is this attempt to make my own name great. And we see it all together different. And look at it, a lot of people know Abram's name. I mean, his name was pretty great, okay? Right? And he kind of did a lot of stuff and had a big platform. And we get, like, but God said, I am going to do that. I am, you're not going to do that. You don't see Abram go, man, how am I going to, you know. I mean, he tries. He steps in and goes, okay, well, God made these promises. And then Hagar, you know that story. He tries a couple of times. How, how well did that go? Yeah, it didn't go. Every time we see Abram take it upon himself to bring about the promises of God, it goes badly. But God was determined to keep his covenant. He says, I am going to make your name great. You're not going to make your name great. I'm going to do it. And when he does that, he does it so that he would be a blessing. And we see ultimately in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that the the purpose of all of it is that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we know that that's in Christ, that one day through Abram would come the, the one who would reconcile the world to himself. And he will bless all the families of the earth through Abram's great name that he gave him that Abram didn't take for himself. Zach Eswine, if you're not familiar with him, 
has just been, for the, particularly this last year for me, just a voice uh, of, of um, what would be the word? It's been a source of refreshment. Zach's just a small, small church pastor. And, and some of his reflections through his journey have just been for me cold water. He says this in his book, Imperfect Pastor. If you haven't read it, do it. Smaller is always better than larger, unless and only if God extrudes us. Unless he forces us out, smaller is always better. This is particularly important for us small town guys. Why? Well, culturally, because we're always the ones looking up. We're always the ones looking up at everyone else's platforms. It doesn't matter which way we turn. We go to conferences and we see what people are doing and we just, it's overwhelming. And we're all, so it's particularly dangerous for us because we're always the ones looking up. And there is this tendency to define for us what success looks like. And then we, that becomes the metric. And then we run and we run hard to try to match up, try to, try to measure up, try to be somebody. By God's great grace, that desperation is, is, is leading me to a calmer uh, existence. Maybe I've just lost just enough hair now, or I've just run at it long enough, hard enough, that I'm, I'm learning, not because I read it in a book, but because I tried and it didn't work, that it just, it, 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 it could kill me. Most of us, we, you know, our platforms will never look like that. It just won't. Does that mean we're not being successful? It, look at, it, it can't mean that. It can't mean that unless God never intended to reach the isolated, forgotten, and small places of the world. And we know that's not true. Right? Everybody wants to achieve some level of greatness, and I don't necessarily think that that is wrong. I think what we see in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see in the Imago Dei, is there is something beautiful about the potential of man. And I think the longing for greatness is, is a good thing. It's just bent. Because of Genesis 3, it's just bent. So Eswine says it's the, our goal of greatness isn't the problem. It's our, it's our definition of it. It's how we define it that his problem isn't our desire for it. It's our definition. He says you cannot, and this was a punch, you cannot glorify God by trying to become him. And that's Genesis 3, isn't it? You cannot glorify God by trying to become him. And, and, and I looked up the word rivalry not too long ago. It was for a sermon series we were doing here at Valley Life. And I looked up the word rivalry. Here's the definition. The fight to obtain what only one can possess. And we use that word mostly in sporting events. And we, we have our favorite sports. We have our favorite teams. And of course, that sport has its, its big deal. It's trophy, it's championship, it's ultimate pinnacle, it's pedestal, and everyone is fighting for it, and only one can have it. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be God's rival. You just don't. Because only one can possess it, and he already does. The problem is it doesn't stop there. We, we, Genesis 3 and then over and over and over again, we, we, we try to contend with God for supremacy, try to fight for what only one can possess. But it doesn't, just, it doesn't just stop there because what we end up doing then next is we become rivals with one another. 
Now, okay, I'm not going to win this battle, but I could win this one. So you might surrender here, but you don't surrender here, and, and damage is done to the church and the mission. There was an article just uh, a week or two back from the Gospel Coalition, and here's the title, Don't Crash Your Ministry Trying to Fly Like an Ace. Anybody see, you follow the Gospel Coalition? Like, this was good. The opening was fantastic. It opened with this illustration, and it was a study that showed that death rates among German fighter pilots in World War II went up because of, highly because of a highly competitive culture that was fueled by envy and jealousy. It was, so basically, the idea was this. Death rates went up because they were, they were pushing the envelope beyond their own capacities because they were trying to compete with others with maybe greater capacity, and they're competing with them, and in so doing, endangering themselves and, ever, and everybody else, and, and the death rate went up. Don't crash your ministry trying to fly like an ace. <laughs> We don't want to contend with one another, and we certainly don't want to contend with God. He doesn't share His glory, Isaiah 42, 8. And yet our tendency is still to build up instead of move out. And it's, it's counterintuitive for us culturally. Let me just think of some of these examples in Scripture. I was going to go there, but for sake of time and temperature... Um, I'm just going to reference these. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive for us culturally. We think, we think differently about these things. So think about um, Nathaniel in John 1, right? Philip comes to him and says, we found the one. We found the one. Well, what do you mean by that? We found the Messiah. That's a big deal. And he says, where's he from? Nazareth. What's, Na what's Nathaniel's question? Uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, for, it's counterintuitive. For him, you're talking about the Messiah. Like, how many stories from Grandpa had he heard about that? And you're saying he's from Nazareth. Yeah, no. If you remember John 7, another story. Again, it's just counterintuitive. We don't think it's going to go this way. The feast is coming up, and, and, and it clearly says in John 7 that, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, but it, nevertheless, they're saying, hey, what are you doing hanging back? Show yourself to the world. So if you want to be some big deal, like, you need to be at this feast, you need to start working the crowd. This is they didn't believe in him. So it's not like they're really trying to encourage him. They're, they're mocking him, saying, look, if you think you're such a big deal, then what are you hanging back for? Anybody who wants to be a big deal needs to go work a crowd. And so what does Jesus go? I'm not going. And they leave, and then he goes secretly, and he hangs back. There are um, many examples of this. Look at, look at, for small towns, the only time the world seems to recognize small towns as, as kind of a good thing is when it's a part of someone who's famous. It's a part of their backstory. Like, and they love to take a film crew there. They get shots, these cute little shots, and get all the shots. Like, we like it when our president is from a small town because it makes him relatable. But if he's from a small town and he's still in the small town, he's not electable. But it's awesome he's from there because he can tell stories about just being the, the everyday guy, the normal guy, and that's relatable and we love it. But if he still lives there, yeah, no. Yeah, there's no way. And they move on, it's not a story. That Cinderella story, the rags to riches story, like we've heard them. The only time the world seems interested in the small town is when it's a part of a gritty backstory. There's other examples of this, and I'll just, uh, Peter in Mark 1, looking for Jesus, when he slips away to pray, comes, everybody's looking for you. And then what does Jesus say? Ah, oh, let's go to the next town. Like, we got a crowd here, let's work it. Now oh, let's go to the next town. Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain in Mark 9, he's transfigured, it's, it's amazing, it's glorious, and he says, don't tell anybody about this. Like, this is the moment, like, this, this is like the thing to tell people. And he goes, I'll just keep this one to yourself. Yeah, I am that glorious, but shh. <laughs> the disciples caught arguing among themselves, who's the greatest? Happened twice. 
James and John asking Jesus if they could have the right and the left spot. And, Mark, and Matthew 20 adds that their mom even got involved. So there's like the, <laughs> it's like the helicopter mom, the biblical helicopter mom, okay. Paul in 1 Corinthians speaking to those in a Greco-Roman world actually recognizes, look, I came and I didn't come with eloquent words. And if you're not going to come to a Greco-Roman world with eloquent words, what are you doing? It's counterintuitive. And Paul didn't come with those kinds of words. God has always done it differently, gentlemen. He chose the foolish things of the world to do what to the wise? To shame them. That's why Nazareth, that's why Bethlehem, that's why. He did the same thing with his disciples. The religious leaders saw that they were uneducated men. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. And then this one hurts me a little bit. I, I don't know why this one stands out, but even John the Baptist in prison, the messenger, the one to prepare the way, he sends messengers to Jesus say, are you, are you the one or are we supposed to look for somebody else? Like even he just in that moment just kind of tipped. The point is if, if we were in charge, we would have come up with another plan. If we were on that campaign strategic team, uh, we would have probably sounded a lot like Jesus' brothers or the rest of his family when they tried to seize him in Mark 3. Why? Because he's out of his mind. Jesus is drawing a crowd. His family's embarrassed. They're trying to get their hands on him to seize him. Why? Because you're embarrassing us. You are out of your mind. It makes more sense for us, guys, to build up instead of move out. And I want to see this. And maybe we won't. I'm just going to. It's hot in here. I'm going to leave off. It's not typical. Those of you who are from here, (laughs) it's not uncommon. Okay. Look at, um, hmm. let's go to Acts chapter one. I'm just gonna do some sermonic surgery here. And then maybe we'll just leave it. Look at verse eight. Jesus said, this is before his ascension, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there you have in chapter one, verse eight, the outline of the entire book of Acts. If you follow it, it it moves into that movement. That's the outline of the book of Acts. But I wanna show you something and it looks a lot like Babel to me. Acts one Jesus tells his disciples, similar to what God has always said, basically be fruitful and multiply. You're going to move out. Starting in Jerusalem, you're going to move out. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and is birthed. Peter preaches. Thousands get saved day one, which is amazing. And it says more are added daily, those who are being saved. So it's this, this explosive movement. Acts chapter 3 and 4, more of the same, proclaiming Christ with power, persecution, and, and how does the church respond? They pray for boldness. We, we tend to pray that the persecution would stop. Uh, they tended to pray for boldness to continue to do what was actually causing the persecution. So they continue to pray for boldness. Acts 5, it says this, which is amazing, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. This is more than ever. Well, 3,000 day one, that was a lot and more than ever people were coming to the Lord. It's unbelievable, and, and the church exploded in Jerusalem, but, Je- but, but Jesus didn't say, you'll be my witnesses just in Jerusalem, did he? He was to move out from there. It was to build up from there. We were to fill the earth. Acts 5, 6, and 7, persecution heats up. The apostles are arrested again. Stephen is stoned after he preaches a mic drop sermon. And then look at, look at chapter 8. God comes down again, in a sense. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now there were those who were, excuse me, scattered, went about doing what? (laughs) Preaching the word. I think we would have been content just seeing that thing blow up in Jerusalem and calling it good. We have always been prone to build up instead of move out. And God has always in his faithfulness come down, confuse the language. He wants the earth filled. And, and he's, he's gonna see that done. He's gonna see that done. I'll end with this. Several years ago, um, a pastor friend of mine in Acts 29 posted a letter he received on our network network forum, this place where we could just ask questions and engage uh, internationally and just help one another. It was a great, great spot. But he posted this letter one day, and I'll just read it. From, from someone, someone writes this to him. Do Acts 29 church planters only plant churches in more urban areas or do some plant churches in small towns? Would there ever be a chance of an Acts 29 church planter planting a church in Valentine, Nebraska? Our pastor informed the elders Sunday night that he's resigning. We have a nice building. We have nice equipment. We have a coffee bar with great coffee. And we have a few committed people. Like, you feel the bargaining? Like, but I feel we have not been a church that has been built on theology. We are sheep in need of a shepherd with a high view of God, Scripture, Jesus, and the gospel. Any input you would have would be very much appreciated. I know that you're very busy with your own flock, but I don't know where else to go with these questions. I don't want our church to fold. I believe there's a need here in Valentine for a church that is culturally more liberal, but biblically more conservative. That doesn't exist here. I have listened faithfully to most of your sermons online. I attribute most of my spiritual growth to your teaching. I don't know any other pastors that can help. My friend, well-intentioned, posted this letter with this message to us, his fellow pastors. He says this, you never know who might be listening to your podcast. Be encouraged. Keep doing what you're doing. Now, let me be clear. I don't think my friend did anything wrong. I don't think he understands. I even think it's a reasonable encouragement for pastors. People listen online, and you can influence beyond your reach and be encouraged. I think that's reasonable. In no way do I mean any harm. But that's not what the letter was about. What was the letter about? Is someone going to come and help us in Valentine? I mean, we've got good coffee. (laughs) Guys, you know this. I don't need to tell you this, but this, it is tragic if the best advice we can give this person is to subscribe to a podcast. They need a church. And somebody's got to go there to have one. And someone's going to have to let the platform thing go if they're the one to go. Yeah. It's enough. I am, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I want you to keep doing it. And God's gonna move some of you to different places. I understand. God's in charge and we want we want churches planted in cities and suburban areas and, and villages and small towns. We, we want all of that. But if your motivation to go somewhere else has anything to do with settling and finding comfort, good coffee, and a place where maybe somebody would pay attention to you, then I would just entreat you to continue to prayerfully ask Christ to make you more like him to not care about the platform, but to want to gather his people wherever they may be.
and you're, you're on the ends of the earth team. And that is the one thing on there that doesn't have a name. It's the one thing on there that doesn't have a name. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. That's the team you're on. And no one will ever know. But Jesus knows. He's watching. And guys, and he's proud of you. He's proud of you. And you put on that mantle. You be more like him. That well done will be sweet. That well done will be sweet. Adrian, you want to come up? We're going to end the day with just reorienting our hearts. We did some heart work. We had some other work. We, uh, we fully intend to do other summits. And we can get to all sorts of things and help one another and resource one another. There's lots of time. And just kind of sit in this and done some heart work. And so now I think it would be good to just end. Got us a lot. And just reorient our hearts. Pray like David, search me and know me. God, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I just pray today would be just a blessing to these men. They've, many have probably gone a long time without a thank you. Maybe even a long time without a convert, long time without any sense of fruit at all. God, I just ask that you be kind and you love on them well and you resource them well and you would do it for your glory and your great name and we'd just be happy to be on the team. I love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you.